prayer, perhaps even faith, might be seen as an immoderate act of physics, a functional means of effecting small changes in reality. This idea, initially a whimsy, came to possess me. Such obsessions are a consequence of having too much time on one's hands, and explain the high incidence of cities made of toothpicks, ships in bottles, and matchstick mosaics found in prison cells. Lucia Shepard is the Hugo, Nebula, and World Fantasy Award-winning author of more than 20 books. His latest works are the short novel Viator from Nightshade Books, Trujillo, a collection of stories, novelettes, and novellas from P.S. Publishing, and his new novel is A Handbook of American Prayer from Thunder's Mouth Press. Welcome to the show, Lucius. Thank you. Lucius, let's talk about how you began to write and read. My father taught me to read when I was really young, like when I was like almost, I guess I was almost four, but, you know, and he started me off reading and quickly worked me up into stuff I didn't understand. By the time I was 12, I had a classical education. You know, I was reading Shakespeare and the Greek histories and stuff like that, and I'm not sure I comprehended everything, but how I got into writing was I was in a rock and roll band and it broke up. I was sitting around the house watching a lot of Christian programming on television and being depressed. My wife sent in half a story I'd written to Clarion, and so I went to the Clarion workshop. Tell us a little bit about Clarion. Some of our listeners might not be familiar with it. Well, it's like, it's a six-week intensive workshop that's held in, in the summers. It's actually three workshops now. There's one in Australia, one in Seattle, and the original one in East Lansing, Clarion East. It's very intensive. You're expected to produce a lot of writing. You have six instructors come in there, six different viewpoints come in to critique your work, and the, the workshop critiques your work, too, the students. You're expected to turn out maybe four or five stories in a session. Once you had started this life of writing, did you have a full-time job? or No. I got, I got a divorce shortly after Clarion, and uh, I moved to Oregon. You know, I was working temp jobs sometimes, and, and I, I lucked out. I, I sold the story early and sold the novel early, so I was able to halfway support myself. I never got another job. Some of your most interesting stories were set in Central America, and I know you spent some time in Central America. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I still go down to Central America. I just came back from Honduras. I've been going down to Central America. Well, my mother was a consul, the consul in Guatemala City, and so I was down there when I was a child. I didn't start going down there as an adult until 1976, and then I've been going down there pretty regularly ever since. I I was in El Salvador in 81 and 82, which was, as you know, a difficult time for El Salvador. So I saw a lot of very bad things then, a lot of death mutilation and stuff i'm now right now i'm going i'm going to honduras more often i'm i'm interested in the lobster diving industry and the mosquito coast the the cocaine industry runs the lobster industry and the lobster industry exploits the divers it's the only work the people in mosquito coast have they use no regulators they dive 14 15 times a day in 130 foot depths everybody who engages in the business has some form or another of the bends i mean you meet young men who very healthy hail who can't grip your hand and there's several thousand people catastrophically paralyzed the cocaine industry ships the lobsters out, they ship a box of cocaine and with a bo- you know a thousand boxes of lobsters and these these fishing expeditions they go on the uh, the lobster diving expeditions they if they get the bends they don't turn back and there are no decompression chambers 
there's one decompression chamber, I think, on the coast and the entire coast. So they just sail on and do their two-week run and then come back. And by that time, it's too late to help these guys. So uh, I'm working a little bit with this guy, Robert Izdebski of Subocean Safety. We're trying to do something about it. You have a new collection of stories, Trujillo, mm -hmm. and some of these stories are based around this experience, aren't they? Yeah, the, um, they're not about the lobster diving, but they're based, uh, Trujillo is the town that's right on the edge of the Mosquito Coast, the edge of nowhere. I mean, the Mosquito Coast is the is a place that the Honduran government doesn't go into very much. It, it's called the country, El, El País Sin Ley, El, the country without law. It's pretty wild. It's pretty much like Joseph Conrad land, you know, down there in Heart of Darkness. There's still, there are actually European traders and little trading posts on the Banana and the Cocoa Rivers. You know, there are guys who are ripping off the coke dealers. There's a, there's a French legionnaire, I know, an ex-French legionnaire who rips off the cocaine dealers and distributes the drugs to the Indians, you know, to sell and takes the money for himself, you know, and uh, all kinds of weird characters back in there. Trujillo is right on the edge, and I just found that a really charming town. It's it's a place like that could have been a big, big resort area. You know, it's beautiful, like you know, gorgeous beach and everything, and waterfalls and mountains and everything. And but tourists won't come to Honduras now because they're scared of the violence and they're scared of the hurricanes, and you know, and so it lie all these big hotels are empty, and the cocaine dealers use them for laundering money. They you know fill the hotel register with fake names, and you know like pass the money in and out like that and it's just a really interesting place and has a really interesting history a very violent history but curious too and because it's on the edge of the mosquito coast which is a place that the hondurans sort of you know are in awe of i mean because it's such a mysterious location environment you know swamp and jungle and that has a lot of weird legends and strange stories that come out. People like, you know, you can go, their gold miners come through there and mine gold, mine, go, go mining for gold in the Mosquito Coast. And they bring back tales of white dolphins. There's a, supposed to be a lost city. It's kind of an interesting place. White dolphins and lost cities. Tell us about some of the other legends. There's all these legends down there that are common to all over Latin America. La Llorona, La, the Weeping Woman. I mean, there's a high incidence of those sightings. The lost city is the main legend. The lost city in the Mosquito Coast, which is supposed to be a lost Mayan city called the White City. You know, nobody's ever found it. They've sent they've sent uh, helicopters, helicopter expeditions, back in there to to find it, but they've never never succeeded. Your novel, Life During Wartime, was set in a fictional future war set in Central America. We're now currently engaged in a non-fictional future war from when that book was written mm -hmm. in the Middle East. I wonder if you'd care to comment on some of the similarities and the differences between what you envisioned and what you see happening today? I don't notice a lot of similarities, except I, I really marvel at the way the war has been managed. He had a, a media marketing expert giving the Pentagon briefings and things like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a sell job that's amazing. The way it's been pushed down America's throat, you know, is just really, you got to admire it. <laughs> you it's know? it's like, the first uh, Madison Avenue war. Yeah, I mean, uh, here's a guy, this whole thing about the embedded reporters, there's a guy standing in a, beside a pile of dirt and saying, nothing's going on and nothing's, we don't know anything, but we've never seen anything like this before, you know, like, you know, I mean, it's uh, um, very Orwellian. You're seeing this wonderful picture from Iraq and nothing's happening. My war in life during wartime was fought with combat suits, combat armor, samurai drugs, and, you know, 
uh, computerized rifles and stuff like that. And that's stuff they've all got. They've got on the board. You know, they've got designs for them. And I've seen blueprints for these these kind of things. I don't know. I don't know. It's an urban war in in, in Iraq, and it's a jungle war in life during wartime. So there's quite a bit of difference. It's uh, urban war is very dirty. Jungle war, the way I had envisioned it being fought, was relatively surgical. I mean, you went in, you know, and you killed a lot of people with your, you know, very few people, using very few people to do it because of their equipment, their their technological advantage. But if there is a war, say, in Central America, I I envision it being like that. If there's a war in Venezuela, possibly, or someplace down there where we're fighting for oil or cocaine, or I think it'd be more like the war in life during wartime. I want to move on to your Dragon Griol stories and series. Dragon is, I think he's 7,000 feet long and 600 feet high at his midpoint the midpoint of his back and has several has a couple of small villages on his back and you know he's overgrown with trees and bushes and shrubs and dirt he's been there for several thousand years paralyzed from a magical battle the town of Teosinte has grown up around the dragon's flanks and stuff in the Carbonales Valley this which is based on a place I know in, in Honduras he just sits there and he controls the the people think he's controlling them through his will his will is affecting reality and that he, everything that happens within his sphere and his sphere may include the whole world Israel's work, you know, his, his subtle influence, his m- mental radiations. I, I kind of am ambivalent about whether that's true or not when I write the stories. One of the things that you do quite effectively in that, in those stories and in much of your other fiction is to take a genre background and setting and then within that genre background and setting to just have a normal story. You mm. did this with Valentine as well. Mm. Could you talk about how you do that and what effects you hope to achieve doing that? I don't really know. <laughs> I'm really honest. I, I don't know what I'm doing when I write. But, I mean, sometimes I think it's fun to to take an ambiguous situation that could be fantasy, and I think it enhances the reality, the story you're telling in reality, if you have if you have this faint hint of fantasy about it. Valentine's a love story, so it's a, there's a lot of fantasy about the, lo- the story itself anyway in, in the mind of the narrator. The fact that there may or may not be a strange alien invasion or anything going on in the background or something like that, just the fact that he concentrates on the woman and he doesn't care about this and he ordinarily he might be what's that you know looking around and trying to find out trying to probe what what's going on in the background but he's so devoted and concentrated upon the woman you know and i think that enhances his fixation his obsession and the, the basically i wanted to make it that a novel or a short novel about obsession so it did work in that way you also write a lot of non-fiction and reviews mm, yeah Tell me about switching between fiction and nonfiction. How do you do that as a writer? Oh, well, I, I actually wrote a book about that, Two Trains Running, which was a piece I did on um, for Spin about hobos. And it also has two stories that I drew from the article I wrote. I think one feeds into the other really well. I was out there re- riding the rails for three months doing this story, and I had I had ideas for stories or for short stories or for novels and stuff like that, on none of which I'll probably ever write. The, I, a novelist or a storyteller's greatest gift is a fact. Facts are jewels. I think Theodore Retka said that. So the more facts you have in your bank, you know, so to speak, the more you know accurate and authentic and and even in a fantasy story it can it is your fiction you know so tell us a little bit about two trains running because that was a really interesting collection you started out writing the ftra with the ftra tell us a little bit about them the ftra 
FTRA is supposed to be, was supposed to be a hobo mob, a mafia. The upshot of my investigation was that it was not. And, uh, well, what does that stand for? <clears throat> well, I, I can't really say that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it stands for the Reagan administration, you know? <laughs> you know. Like these guys were sitting, these hobos were sitting, a bunch of hobos, about 13 of them or 12 or something like that, were sitting under a, uh, a bridge in Collispell, Montana, under a railroad bridge. And they, they noticed this XTRA railroad car going by. And the leader, you know, who became the head of the FTRA, whose name is Greg something, I can't remember right now, said we should call ourselves the FTRA, the Reagan administration. And, uh, you know, uh, and so they, they it's more of a brotherhood, really. I mean, mm-hmm. that there are criminals involved. I mean, who come and become who commit, people who commit crimes, who become members, you know, but there's no criminal conspiracy. The criminal conspiracy was the fundamental fantasy of this detective in Spokane, Washington, named Bob Grandinetti, who uh, sort of uh, used this as a as a platform to float his own boat, get a, get his own little fifteen minutes of fame, and like he hoped to write books and do lectures on the FTRA and stuff like that when he was retired. You know, like he was getting near retirement age, and I think it was all his fantasy. I mean, the idea that these men could do anything organized. They can't even decide on what beer they want to buy. And like, you know, they have, you're talking about a hobo mafia, a hobo army of hitmen. I mean, these guys have diseased livers. I mean, they have all kinds of diseases there. You see a 40 year old man. He looks, he looks uh, 60. There's no way it could be true. You know? But while you were doing your research, wasn't that during the time when a serial killer was oh, yeah, knocking off the hobos? Richard Silveria, yeah, sidetrack. Well, he was already up. He was in jail by the time I started. There, I mean, that's the, again, that's a serial killer. That's not a mob, you know. Like it's not organized, no. you know. But uh, there's violence on the rails. But they were blaming everybody that they found anywhere. Near a, near a freight line in the United States on the FTRA. And the FTRA was just a bunch of, you know, basically a bunch of drunks. I talked to this one guy I'm in prison named Mississippi Bones. You know, I don't know his real name. I don't think he knows his real name. It's so far in the past. But uh, he had killed a guy and uh, shot a guy named F Trooper, you know, a hobo named F Trooper. He uh, shot him in the top of the head. In fact, he demonstrated how I mean put the gun to the top of my head, you know, <laughs> and bang, you know. <laughs> he was in the in Florence, in Florence, Colorado, in the jail here, the big, big maximum security prison, little tiny guy. He killed F Trooper because basically F Trooper was going to steal his dog. The hobos and their dogs are very attached, you know, they, they have a really important relationship, and uh, he didn't want his dog stolen, so he killed him. It didn't, it didn't really have anything to do with anything, you know. It's like none of this stuff is connected. People get thrown off the trains. They get hurt sometimes in freight yards. People trying to catch out often get hurt, you know, when you, you don't catch out right. You know, you can fall under a freight very easily. What does catch out mean? Catch out means hop a freight. Okay. And people who are riding freights, they often go about it the wrong way and get torn up by the wheels. But, I mean, there's not any conspiracy. There's some bad people in the FTRA who do their own thing. And, I mean, right now the, the leader of the FTRA has become a preacher. He preaches out of his camper van up in Montana. Since it was all a fantasy, pretty much, you know. But the rails are a dangerous place, you know. I mean, it's no doubt about that. There are three pieces in the book. So tell us a little bit about those three pieces, how you move from reality to fantasy and back to a really harder core. The piece itself 
contains sections of stuff that I used in the stories. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. like bits of description, names. One's a fantasy story, and one's a, one of the stories is, is mainstream general fiction. Uh, the guy I rode with is named Mad Cat, so I just used his name. He was a Gulf War hobo. He came back from the war with one of those weird Gulf War diseases people got from chemicals and stuff made him disassociative you know he was he'd go off and kind of stare at the walls for hours and then he'd come back and be normal you know like so he couldn't hold down a job and he went on the rails i used a lot of him in that story you know like because he didn't know he would have these episodes of a blankness where he couldn't remember lost time and so i i put put that in the story you know where i had this guy not know whether he killed somebody or not you know like he might have or he might not mad cat could do that you know i mean he was he was a strange man. All the hobos have this mystical relationship kind of with what they drink or what they put in their bodies. I mean, I remember sitting in a bar in Seattle with him one time, and he was like, he'd just been in a fight and been beaten up. And uh, I said, what's wrong? And he said, you know, oh, I'm really depressed, man. You know, he said, if I'd been drinking whiskey, I would have kicked the hell out of him. But I was only drinking beer, you know, <laughs> like, you know, so, you know, I mean. I don't know. I just used all those little bits and pieces from the article, like to make up parts of landscapes, descriptive par- passages that I wrote in the article, scenes I wrote in the article, and lifted entirely and put in the stories. So this is how a writer works, I think. fact is, I happened to write an article about the, the thing I was looking at, but mo- write, most writers look at things and then they take pieces of it and plop it into a story. Your new novel, Out from Nightshade Books, Viator, is something of a stylistic uh, change of pace. It reads as if you were a jazz guy playing a long saxophone solo. Could you tell us a little bit about how you discovered that style and how you managed to pursue it and a little bit about about the surreal terrain of the book itself? Well, Viator is about uh, five men who were sent to a northern part of Alaska to estimate how much the salvage of a boat that's been wrecked ashore, run ashore there would be, how much it would be worth. That's what they're told. There are five homeless men of Swedish or of Swedish heritage, you know, and like they find that coincidental, but they're too interested in the boat. By, by the time they get interested in that, it's too late for them. Stylistically, it's, it's just something I wanted to do. I, I wanted to, I thought, since the novel basically describes a descent into madness, I thought the best way to do it was really long sentences. You know, I think I was a little bit of homage to Joseph Sarecki, who's a writer I greatly admire, who wrote, uh, a novel, a short novel called The Bass Saxophone, which used sentence structures like mine, but even more complex. But I, I, I thought it would be very appropriate for me to extend the style because it would show this guy gradually losing it. As his first first thoughts are pretty lucid, they're long sentences, but they're more structured, and then they get to be run-on sentences, they get all disjointed, they you know, become more and more chaotic. And it, 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 did a nat- it was a naturalistic way approach, uh, approach to somebody going mad. Tell us a little bit about the idea behind the Handbook for American Prayer. Handbook of American Prayer, uh, the inciting incident was happened to me when I was working as a bartender on Nantucket. I had a co-bartender. We, we both worked the bar late at night. And he was something of a, I guess a sexist would be short short term for it. And I, I was in the back cleaning some glasses and this woman came in and she, she was very well dressed and it was late at night. We were just about to close and she tried to hit him up for a drink, you know, and he just wouldn't have it. He was very rude to her, and, you know, sardonic. And finally he said, show me your breasts and I will give you a drink. So she went back in the kitchen and showed him her breasts. And her breasts were bruised and horribly scarred and had stitches in them and everything. There were, And then she said to him, 
don't squeeze them too hard. I've just had a reduction. And I thought that was, you know, an interesting, you know, scene, you know, if I ever wanted to put it, you know, so I filed it away. And later I came up with the idea of um, this guy, Wardland Stewart, the character, based a little bit on my bartender friend. was very disengaged with the world, and I didn't have any idea what I'd do with him, but I put him in prison and I started thinking about it. And, you know, I came up with the idea for the praying, you know, the prayer style, which is a method of praying he develops in prison based on achieving small effects and it's not directed at a god or any particular god it's just directed outward at the universe it's it's his theory is that prayer is an immoderate act of physics it's a it's a means of influencing the universe through the focus and the choice of precise words he starts writing prayers for the men in prison you know around him and comes up with a whole collection of these prayers, which his writing teacher in prison says, well, let's send it to an agent, along with some commentary. And the book is published, A Handbook of American Prayer, it's called, and he becomes a celebrity, crosses over into the literary, you know, because the prayers are very poetic kind of prayers. They use language in creative ways, and, like, he uh, becomes a celebrity, and that's where the story takes off from. You have some really interesting thoughts in this book about the relationship between our identity and the language we're forced to use to Hmm. express our identity. Could you talk about that a little bit? I hadn't thought about that myself. (laughs) But, you know, I see what you mean. I think, I mean, I think we're all basically, well, to one degree or another, you know, we're unfocused on what we're saying and what we're doing and what we're thinking. I mean, we always have this little subtext going on, like I'm in the room, I'm here, I'm doing this interview and stuff like that. But we don't really think in precise terms and we don't enunciate it in precise terms. I think if people, when people stop and think and they stop, they, they don't have to be great artists or good artists to, uh, to speak their minds. They can just focus and concentrate their words a little bit. I think they define themselves more. I think they, you know, when you use words right, when you use words precisely, you define yourself through your speech, you know, and like that has a backwash effect onto your personality. We create ourselves through the language we yeah, choose. Yeah, yeah. Back when you started, the corporate press was had a certain character, and that character has certainly changed in the intervening years. And through all those years, the small press has somewhat remained the same. Tell us a little bit about your experience with both sides of the equation. I've had I've had some difficult times with with both presses, with both major and minor presses. I mean, uh, currently I'm enjoying a good relationship with, with small presses. I mean, for instance, you know, like uh, I published a book early in my life. You know, I won't say which book, but it was um, when it was moved to the backlist. You know, and all the reviews were coming out. They lost. They didn't. They didn't put it on the back list. They just eradicated it from the front list, and like uh, that means it wasn't able. You weren't able to order it, you know. And that went on for six weeks, you know, while the reviews were all out there and nobody could order the book. And then they they put it back on the list on the back list, and they started sending out copies of another book that had a name very similar to it instead of my book, you know, whenever my book was ordered. So, I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing you can run into. uh, And I called them up and I asked, how's the book doing? You know, and, you know, like uh, my editor told me, uh, oh, it's terrible. It it, it isn't selling. And, you know, and and she never explained why. And I I felt, you know, like it was my fault and, you know, everything like. And uh, later on, I, I found out the truth and 
was exercised. That's the kind of thing that can happen in the big presses when you're starting out, you know, especially. As far as a small press thing, I mean, you know, I'm in the past, I've had trouble getting paid for work and stuff like that, you know, but it's, it's, it's six and one half a dozen the other, but I mean, I, you know, the people I'm working with now are good. Tell us a little bit too, something I find interesting about you, that you have a really avowed interest in sports. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that's not really all that common in the genre fiction world. You've written about it. Tell yeah. us a little bit about your interest in sports and does that intersect with your fiction in your writing? You've written, a, I know you've written a little bit about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've read, read, written several stories about boxing. I'm a big boxing fan. I was a amateur boxer and, until I got knocked out. I, I like football. I like martial mixed martial arts, combat fighting. I guess I'm just, you know, a violent guy. I mean, you know, like, you know, I like it. But, I mean, I, I don't want to commit violence, but, you know, it's it's interesting for me to see. I think uh, one of my friends, Catherine Dunn, is a, a pretty famous writer. She... Uh, She's also into the same thing. She's into boxing and mixed martial arts and stuff like that. And uh, I don't know. Catherine and me have basically the same idea about sports. We think it's like a very pure distillation of of, of a of a drive that's that's in people, you know, and uh, a competitive drive, a aggressive drive, you know, and uh, you know it has to come out somewhere, and it's better in sports and you know in Iraq, you know. So you know, like. Uh, Where's your space opera series? Nowhere. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I'm not going to be doing one, I don't think. I, I haven't, I, I'm not a good science fiction writer. I mean, I write, I mean, I write better fantasy, you know, than, mm-hmm. than I write the science fiction. Most of the science fiction I think is that I write, I write, I don't like. Life during wartime, I liked about half of it. I, I mean, I, I'm gravitating more and more toward the mainstream or toward, toward a kind of false mainstream or false genre aspect like prayer like handbook of american prayer or this novel i'm writing now which is a vampire novel without vampires and uh well tell us a little bit about this is this a follow-up in some way to uh the golden which no is, not I, really i mean it, it could be but i mean you can see that way but it's uh, a family in south carolina who's uh who've suppressed who, who are a powerful political family and they have suppressed their symptomology they were descended from vampires or not you don't know that i mean you know it's it's possible to assume that they're just engaging in a fantasy that served them during the civil war to frighten people so they could keep their property you know like uh, they've they've nurtured the fantasy or you know the reality and like got a family history that details certain excesses of vampiric nature and uh, you know all that stuff and and uh, t- into that setting, I'll bring an outside character and tell it through his eyes. And he has to decide, I mean, what's going on, you know, kind of. Uh, but they're not really vampires anymore. You know, they're uh, people. But possibly there's a chance for reversion, you know. like yeah, so, you know. And then there's, I, I have another book that I'm working on uh, about a fake apocalypse, you know, which is uh, called The End of Life as We Know It. You know, or how I actually haven't decided that it might be called how to survive the coming nuclear holocaust. But uh, you know, it's uh, about a a man who uh, gets in with some p- primitive sort of survivalists, you know, and who think that their leader is going to come king after you know the atomic bombs fall, and like uh, he devises a, a ra- he builds a radio for them, you know, a fake radio, and puts in all these loops of from apocalyptic films like Seven Days in May and Panic in the Year Zero and stuff like that. And uh, 
fakes an apocalypse, and they all go running off to the their home in the Cascades, their hideout in the Cascades, and get snowed in for a winter, thinking the world has ended. You know, so I mean, you know, I I, I think there's a theme there, of, you know, like between those two books and American Prayer, that I'm not trying to escape the genre, but trying to make it so ambiguous that you know, like it's, uh, you know, it becomes it so it becomes a matter of you know, the for the reader to decide, you know. Uh, this is a little bit of uh, what we might call literary science fiction, which has taken actually an upsurge in recent in recent years. We, yeah. This year we had uh, David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, mm-hmm. Haruki Murakami, Margaret Atwood, a lot of mainstream writers incorporating bits of science fiction into their literature, and you're you seem to be uh, kind of reverse engineering the process. Yeah, I mean they're doing genre stuff. I mean you know there's no doubt. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm doing genre stuff or not. I'm doing. I don't even know if it's slipstream. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's just whatever it is, you know. But, uh, yeah, like uh, Margaret Atwood's particularly amusing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, she's a she's a thorn in the side of the genre and in the non-genre. She's not a thorn in the side of the genre. I mean, she's, I, I think, I mean, well, maybe she is to some people, but, I mean, I just find her totally amusing. I mean, you know, like, uh, well, she just... I mean, cries out that no, it's not science fiction. Don't call it science fiction. You know, it's like you know, like uh, so what? You know, I mean, it's, it doesn't matter what you call it as long yeah. as it hits the bestseller list. Right, right. <laughs> Tell us a little bit too about um, your last uh, novella for PS Publishing, Floater, uh, kind of a ripped from the headlines. Oh yeah, I, I was just using the. Uh, who was that guy's name? Uh, Arma Amadou Diallo. Yeah, Diallo. Yeah, I was using his murder to create a fantasy, uh, a voodoo fantasy in New York. You know, between uh, basically a conflict between two cops. You know, who are members of the, the team that that shot Diallo, and you know, it turns out in my story that the one cop was doing it for reasons that connected with this war between the Santeria, his Santeria sect, and the Shango Baptist, which is another form of voodoo affiliation and uh and you know the story builds out from there we've been speaking with lucia shepherd his latest novel is a handbook for american prayer he has a short novel viator from nightshade books and a collection of stories trujillo from ps publishing thanks for talking with us lucius thanks